And what's going on, guys? I'm your host, Phil DeRue. This is the DeRue Strong Podcast, episode number 011. We're getting, we're getting up there. I swear I'm doing plenty of these. We got, we got plenty more to go. I'm trying to make a 1,000. I'm trying to get on Joe Rogan status. But today, I had the opportunity to talk to Mr. Danny Wilson, a sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach out of the UK. He works with a ton of boxers. I got the opportunity to meet Danny as he came to one of my seminars in London, and I can honestly say he has his hands on some of the best opportunities when it comes down to getting the boxers in the best physical condition. He has a lab there that he tests the guys out on, and again, very knowledgeable, understands the process and understands the sport. So we had a good conversation about how he programs, about the other certain types of myths out there and misnomers on strength and conditioning for boxing in general. So I know you guys are going to enjoy it. Now, before we get into the conversation with Danny, I want to make sure I shout out the sponsors. Make sure you guys go check out ReviveMD, ReviveSups.com. You can check out my only Phil DeRue athlete stack, my only supplementation line that I utilize, my personal stack for myself, for my athletes. You can get that over on ReviveSubs.com and make sure you use the discount code DeRueStrong20 at your checkout so you can get 20% off your complete buy, okay? Also, I want to make sure that you guys go on to my YouTube channel. The new YouTube channel for the DeRueStrong podcast is now available. You can check out this video right here if you guys want to watch my beautiful mug and the guys that I have on or girls that I have on. And also make sure that you go and subscribe so you can get a brand new free MMA strength and conditioning program, completely free, off-season, six weeks of complete training through the entire six weeks to get you ready for your camps. All right, and that's completely free. All you have to do is go subscribe to the Daru Strong podcast channel. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and talk to Danny. Let's get into it. Mind somewhere else to keep going. That little voice in your head is trying to stop you from getting to where you want to be. Be successful and keep moving forward. With your host and world renowned strength and conditioning coach, Phil DeRue. Welcome, everybody, to the DeRue Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Phil DeRue. Today, I have my guy all the way from England, Mr. Danny Wilson from Boxing Science. What's going on, Danny? Hi, Phil. All good. Thanks for having me on your podcast. So tell me a little bit of something. I see the background there. What's going on? Are you, are you, are you exempt from going into the living room or what's going on there? We're doing a, a podcast special in, in, uh, in bed with Danny Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, that, man. Yeah, get yeah I'm in, in lockdown. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just in a flat. Um, so my partner, she is working from home. Mm-hmm. I've been banned from the living room whilst I'm doing this. <laughs> That's all good, man. I know we we all are on lockdown right now, so it's good to catch up with you. You know, obviously mm-hmm. we're we're very busy people, so I do appreciate you coming on and talking a little shop with me. Um, yeah. So go ahead for the people that don't know, which you should by now. Let's go over your background. You know how you got started, and and also talk about boxing science and all the things that you're doing there with all the boxers over in the UK. Yeah. Great. So to introduce myself, my name is Sonny Wilson. I'm a UKCA strength and conditioning coach based in Sheffield in the UK. 
and I am the co-founder of Boxing Science and Red Zone Running. I mainly work with boxers, uh, amateur and professional, but I also work with amateur uh, youth golfers as well. Mm. And to give you a bit of background, I'll say where Sheffield is, because I'm imagining a lot of your listeners don't actually know where Sheffield is. They only heard of London and Manchester. We're closer to Manchester mm-hmm. uh, than London. And Sheffield is like known as a steel city. It's um, known for basically producing steel. Mm-hmm. And it's got a huge sporting culture. The first football team, or you'd say soccer, mm-hmm. the first ever football team in the world was found there. Oh, We've wow. got two very average professional football teams. We've got one of the best ice hockey teams in the country. Um, obviously not as good as the ones in America, mm-hmm. um, but it's a massive boxing city. Wow. So we are like the third ranked boxing city in the UK wow. based off like people to active boxers ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we come second to, sorry, we come third to Liverpool and Hull, which are big uh, boxing cities. We have, we're more famous for professional boxers such as mm-hmm. Kel Brook and Prince Nazim Hamid. Okay. If you've never seen Prince Nazim Hamid before, you need to go and watch out his, uh, his highlight reel. But also, uh, this is like kind of filtered down like Prince Nazim Hamid. Um, like, we're absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. Made people like me get interested in boxing. I was like about five or six when he was at his peak. So mm-hmm. I had like his annual. I wanted to go and watch all his fights and everything yeah. like that. But that filtered down to a massive boxing community. Not only that, we have the English Institute of Sport in Sheffield, Mm -hmm. which is host to GB Boxing, which is our Olympic boxing program. We have England Boxing, uh, uh, boxing science are involved with as well. Mm -hmm. And also Anthony Joshua uh, trains there as well. So he's the heavyweight champion of the world. So that gives you a background of the kind of city that I'm from. (laughs) I studied there uh, at Sheffield University, did my... um, degrees there in sport and exercise science. I uh, did my bachelor's and my master's. And with the location, gave me fantastic opportunities to get involved with sport. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned the football team, Sheffield United, who are in the Premier League at the moment. I went there, started getting into strength and conditioning there, mm-hmm. building my craft. And then I was in a whole range of different sports, such as like rugby league, mm-hmm. basketball, and golf as well. But I always wanted to get into boxing. That's the main kind of reason why I got into strength and conditioning. Mm. When I was younger, I romanticized about the, the Rocky training. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I saw like, I watched Rocky one to four at a young age and I was just were going out, running, doing hundreds of sit-ups, wanting to get abs like Rocky. And it wasn't until about 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. when I fully started getting into boxing, watching it, I know I, I knew all the big names in the UK, mm-hmm. heard of Floyd Mayweather and everything like that, but I really started getting into it and I started watching about the training. Mm-hmm. I saw Alex Ariza working with Manny Pacquiao and Amir Khan, and I would just saw him and just went, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. So that's why I got into strength conditioning in the first place, mm-hmm. but there wasn't that opportunity there. So that's why I went to get my experience in different mm-hmm. sports with the view to be working in boxing. Um, in 2012, I started working with the student boxer in the gym. I basically volunteered my services to get some experience, start building up my network within boxing. Mm-hmm. And then I started working with an amateur boxing club, Sheffield City ABC, and started like doing like some research, 
-hmm. started inviting more amateur boxing gyms to like a, a regular strength and conditioning program yeah. and kind of like started growing through word of mouth, started getting professional boxers in, mm -hmm. started boxing science where we um, did our website, started doing a lot more stuff on social media, mm -hmm. started working with professional boxers and leading on to start working with like some more high profile boxers. So my big break was really working with Cal Brook. Mm -hmm. So I working with him in bits in 2015. But my main big break was when he uh, took on Gennady Golovkin in 2016. Mm -hmm. He had to jump up two weight divisions. Yeah. And we put in a strength and conditioning program to help adapt to that massive um, jump in weight. And from there, we did such a good job with him. Mm -hmm. We started getting more and more boxers coming through our doors. Yeah. I've probably worked with over 100 boxers, professional and amateur, either through testing or, or training. Yeah. And that ranges from boxers just having their first bout to obviously world champions such as like Kel Brook. So mm. it's, uh, it's been a good journey so far. I'm very appreciative. I absolutely love the job. Um, can't wait for this lockdown to be over. So I'm back in the gym training the champs. Yeah, man. So we met each other in London. Um, you attended my seminar, but I was extremely happy to see you because I was yeah. looking to pick your brain on a couple of things. So this yeah. is why I brought you onto the podcast because we do – we see, you know, things in similar views. Now with Cal, what was like, what was your approach going into it? Because it was a big fight, you know, it's probably one of your first times working with him, correct? So yeah. what, what exactly was the, what was the start of Like, how did you get him in the gym? You know, what happened after that? Did you do the assessment? And then from there, what was the protocols going into the fight itself? Yeah, so with Cal, um, like this, this is the reason why I started getting into boxing strength conditions, saw that opportunity, because Kel started working with Sheffield Helm University, working with Alan Ruddock, who's uh, my business partner at Boxing Science. He's a physiologist. You, you should definitely get him on the podcast, by the way. Yep. Uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever met, uh, or probably is the smartest guy I've ever met. And Dave Hember was his strength and conditioning coach, and they trained him up to him winning his world title in 2014. Mm -hmm. And then he had a, a few fights where he probably neglected strength conditioning in mm -hmm. a way or didn't feel like he needed it, um, prioritized different things. Um, so I didn't just get him like kind of like as this new athlete that's never done strength conditioning before. He already mm -hmm. done some fantastic work uh, with Dave Hembra, with uh, Alan Ruddock as well as coach uh, Dominic Ingle was very switched on to uh, how to train athletes physically. So well, I had a really good athlete to work with. The main thing was is that he was going to be performing at a much higher weight. So, he, uh, you know, I don't know whether you have more of an MMA crowd, but mm -hmm. Kel was at welterweight, which is 147, mm -hmm. and he went up to middleweight which is 160 and he was we wanted to try and be as big as possible but mm. maintain that speed as well yeah so we had to come up with a plan in being at middleweight mm. maintaining his speed because speed was going to be a massive advantage mm -hmm. uh, try and increase his strength at the same time mm -hmm. but also become accustomed to being in the ring mm -hmm. is probably is going to be about 10 pounds heavier. Mm -hmm. You know, 16, it was probably 16 pounds 
in terms of making weight, but probably if you go from his welterweight fighting weight, obviously rehydrates and rehydrates massively to is in performing at middleweight with probably a 10 pound difference, but over a 12 round distance, that'd be a massive uh, contributing factor. So yeah. we have to deal with his muscles ability to uh, deal with high intensity, high lactate production. Mm -hmm. So we, we did the 30 second max out sprints. Um, Those suck by the way, they suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, for us coaches, maybe not for the athletes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so we had to do we had to do that, and and plus we only had nine weeks to prepare for it, a massive, mm -hmm. massive challenge. So we we had to look at all these adaptations in the quickest way and being able to do it without injuring him, without overtraining him as well. Mm -hmm. So we did the thirty second max out sprints, and we also paired that up with some heat therapy after it. So we got him in the hot bath mm -hmm. for uh, around about thirty minutes. And this is basically prolonging the signaling pathways from his conditioning session. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like kind of getting them extra one to five percent mm -hmm. on top of that session. Uh, we, we also did a muscle buffering phase where it's controlling that acidosis, mm -hmm. um, where we actually developed a totally new uh, running method. So we we, the the day, uh, what the research suggests is to do two minutes on, three minutes off, mm -hmm. uh, and to have a tar target lactate of between ten and twelve millimol. Mm -hmm. But I knew that Kel would be relying on his speed and working in high intensity bursts, mm -hmm. again out of the way of Glofkin. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he'd be more adaptable if he were doing some faster pace stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I was I was out in Fort Ventura, which is in Spain, for a training camp, Alan was testing out a method to get in between them target lactate zones mm -hmm. uh, at, a faster, at a faster pace. So he put his yeah. body on the line for science. So, <laughs> so the, the main, the main um, running protocol that we did when we were back in the UK was the muscle buffering, uh, 12 seconds on, 48 seconds off, mm. continuous. We do 15 repetitions and we build that up to 25 repetitions. So it's 10 speeds of like 25, 26, kilometers an hour keeping mm -hmm. that consistent and we're monitoring his lactate every third repetition to see how he's controlling mm -hmm. that lactate mm -hmm. and trying to keep him within those zones mm -hmm. if he's under stimulated and his lactate isn't going up we tell him to keep going we tell him to maybe increase it. up the gears yeah if his lactate is going out of control we tell him to take it down take a few down. gears so mm -hmm. we're then controlling it because we don't want to like kind of overload the athlete if we it goes out of that kind of muscle yeah. buffering zone then we're not learning how to control it so they were our main condition uh models in terms of strength we use velocity based training um to make sure that it was getting that speed we we build up them foundations because i knew that it wasn't uh doing a lot of strength conditioning before so we built up the the foundations first towards around about 90 percent max uh one met max mm -hmm. And then most of the work was around about anywhere between 75 to 85% one met max mm -hmm. um, using very easy lifts such as um, rat Romanian deadlift, mm -hmm. low technical demand, but he, he really excelled in, in producing force in that. So it w wasn't the result that we were after, mm -hmm. but I think he shocked quite a few people on, on his performance. Yeah. Um, obviously he had to retire because of an injury, but everybody kind of like, 
stood up and took notice of that because it was highly documented on Sky Sports because yeah. they, it, it, was, it was weird because I was like, probably, to put it in context, I probably had about 900 Instagram followers or something like that. <laughs> never, 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 been, never been on TV before. Yeah. And next minute, they're doing a pay-per-view Mm-hmm. And it sounds a little bit big-headed saying this, but they were Sky, Sky Sports were using our pro, uh, our program to kind of make it out like, look at all this training that Kel's doing. Yeah, look at him; he's got a chance because everybody was writing him off, mm-hmm. and everyone just thought he was going to get smashed. Mm-hmm. But they em- overemphasized like kind of the strength and conditioning and the sports mm-hmm. science that he was doing to a point where it was actually mentioned in the in the press conference and. People asking Glofkin's team, "What do you make of his sports science training?" Everything <laughs> like that. Then I was That's on great. Sky Sports, Sky Sports News, which nice. is a massive, yeah. uh, massive like kind of news station. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it was strange, strange times. So, like kind of we're taking it all in a stride at the time and yeah. just treating it like a job. The task was in hand. They weren't getting like kind of hyped up. Mm-hmm. Um, but like looking back, I just think, well, like especially when it doesn't happen too often in your career yeah. you look back and think Fluminate that that was absolutely massive and I was only 25 years old as well uh, yeah, you're young. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean it's it's always fun it's always fun like because I get the countdown show that comes on for a lot of the UFC guys and now I've done I've done enough to where it's like I know the routine uh, but when I first did it I was like oh okay so and then we had to make sure everything was perfect. Now they're like just just a kind of like a fly on the wall in a sense, yeah. you know, when you do as as much as you do, and and that's a testament to the team that we have, you know what I mean. But yeah. the great thing is that you're getting recognition for what you do. You're putting in the hard work, yeah. and then people are actually seeing that and getting some benefit out of that too, as well. And that's what you do with boxing science. Now. Yeah. With boxing science, how did that come about? Like, I know you were working with the athletes, and you just you decided to develop this system, and the membership, and all of that. Now, why did you decide to do that? Was it something that you had planned, or it just came out um, when you were getting all these boxers together? It kind of was. Um, it kind of came about after working with quite a few different boxers. Mm-hmm. I was doing like some online blogs when I was um, just coming through like practicing my writing, mm-hmm. practicing doing videos that were about 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them articles were uh, a little bit amateurish when I look back, uh, but it was good because I was practicing on how to, how to write and how to get my message across and mm-hmm. being reflective on my training methods at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and give me a bit of a head start when I was launching something that has the potential to be bigger. Mm-hmm. So, I was all into doing stuff online, getting my message across, and it was a natural move whilst I'm working with all these boxers yeah. to start off boxing science. And one of my main objectives with boxing science is to have an impact on the sport. Mm-hmm. It's not just working with athletes and to uh, you know work with athletes that are in my area. Mm-hmm. I saw boxing as a sport that needed that strength condition, that intervention in sports science. Mm-hmm. I've been working in football, in rugby league, in golf, where there's these kind of systems in place and they're getting uh, athlete, the younger athletes are getting developed from a very early age. Whereas in England, the boxers don't see a strength conditioning coach unless they're on the GB boxing team. 
Wow. And there's only there's only twenty on the GB boxing team. And there's thousands, <laughs> tens of thousands of amateur boxers yeah. that need that athletic development. So the only way now to do that is getting your message out there through social media, through yeah. online and develop like being able to share that research. Mm. Also, we did we do our research at Sheffield University and name me 10 boxing coaches that will go and read a sports science journal article. Mm-hmm. You probably not, you, you probably struggle. Uh, you've got to find a different way on how to communicate the message. Yeah, you might not have the correct references and the correct uh, R values to, to share, mm-hmm. but you're getting the message across to help benefit uh, the, the industry because yeah. there's not enough strength conditioning coaches out there to be in the amateur boxing gyms to develop these kids from a very early age. Yeah. These kids have probably not got enough money to afford a strength and conditioning coach. Mm-hmm. So we need to help educate the coaches to develop safe and effective strength and conditioning methods in the gyms to make the sport better on whole. So that's the reason why I started Boxing Science. And you know I started doing like articles um, on a range of different subjects. And then Instagram, Facebook became bigger and bigger and bigger. So I started doing a lot of my uh, social media content on there, Mm -hmm. uh, doing like different videos and everything like that. And then over the last year, we have, we've developed our website and the amount of traffic that goes onto our website is, is absolutely massive. I Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it kind of look, cause I like, cause I was so focused on, on Instagram and doing the videos and doing YouTube videos as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of neglected the the website a little bit and didn't see the importance of it. Yeah. But I can't believe how how many kind of hits that gets without me sharing anything across social media. So mm-hmm. it, it provides a strong foundation for us doing anything for our programs or anything like that because everything was like a little bit all over the place as well. Like we were selling online programs on a, a, a separate online portal. Yeah. So we we had to kind of redevelop it to bring it all in, to bring it all on brand. And we did a massive redevelopment last year where we've got the, the Boxing Science membership. Yeah. Uh, this is like the Netflix of sports science for boxing. <laughs> um, we've got a load of different video workshops, uh, mainly from ourselves, but obviously mm-hmm. we've got guest speakers. We've got yourself on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got um, Duncan French and Bo Sandoval from the UFC Performance Institute. Mm-hmm. We've got some UK strength conditioning coaches working with some top professional boxers, and it's a fantastic hub of of information. So, mm-hmm. if anybody wants to get on that, there's a seven day free trial. You can try it. There's no contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, see whether it's your thing, and you can cancel it after seven days if you if you if it's not your thing. So, just go go and check that out and see what uh what we're about at boxing science all right so before we get ahead of ourselves now you talk about social media right and i know you put a lot of good information on instagram somebody dm me earlier i think it was maybe was it last night or maybe this morning i don't know my my days get blended together when you have 18 19 hour days but um so I wanted to talk to you about this one. You just put up a recent post about does lifting weights weights make you slow for boxing? Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, so that post was about basically the, the myth or what people call a myth, do weights make you slow? 
for boxing. And instead of just totally discounting it, mm-hmm. you've got to admit that if you train like a bodybuilder, if you train like a, a power lifter all the time, then that will make you slow for boxing. So you've got to make sure that your strength training methods are working towards the purpose of the sport, and that's increasing the rate of force development because mm-hmm. we know at Boxing Science, we've done our research where the rate of force development is a massive contributor to punching speed, punching strength. Mm-hmm. And we've also done our testing battery where we found that the higher that you can jump, mm-hmm. the will uh, correlate with uh, punch power. Mm-hmm. So the higher you can jump, the harder you can punch. So we need to make sure that our strength and conditioning methods work towards that purpose. That doesn't mean that you do loads of reps on, on chest press and do bicep curls and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why I put a purse like that because one, it gets attention. Two, it's a massive question that people want to know. <laughs> and three, you've got to kind of dispel that, you know, what is a myth? Because if you do strength training in the right way, it's going to benefit performance. But if you do it in the wrong way, it can end up making you slow. Yeah, it's all context in, in all that is dependent upon the individual, like always. But yeah. for what we see is that, yes, there's there's certain times where you need to do some type of bodybuilding hypertrophy mm. type movements to whether it be increase some lagging muscles that need to be brought up. Um, not not yeah. so much for boxing. At some points, yes, they need that. Um, but again, you do need absolute strength that can potentiate into explosive power. Yeah, all that stuff there is is crucial. That's kind of the reason why I adopted the conjugate style of an approach with all of my fighters, um, primarily because we are working both sides of that force velocity curve throughout the time that we need to. Um, Now, with that being said, I want to get your take on it. What are your go to exercises for increasing punching power? And there's a lot of things, obviously, ballistics, plyometrics. What's what's kind of like your go to? I know you do a lot with the landmine. Um, Just go ahead and go into that. Yeah, so the go-to exercises, I got asked this the, the other day, what my non-negotiable exercises are. Mm-hmm. And it, there's no non-negotiable exercises because we've always got to adapt around the athlete that we're working with, mm-hmm. what access to facilities that we have, what's going to be appropriate to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're always working towards a non-negotiable purpose, mm-hmm. which is improving the rate of force development and transferring that into a punk punching action main exercises that i use i use a trap bar deadlift Mm -hmm. i find that boxers are really tight around their shoulders Mm -hmm. and they're unable to kind of keep that scapular retraction to make sure that they keep in nice straight posture Mm -hmm. especially when they go to heavier loads so we find that the trap bar deadlift is a much safer Mm -hmm. exercise to use Mm -hmm. but a more effective one as well because Mm -hmm. you're able to load it up a lot more Mm -hmm. we use that in in a few different ways so we can use it for maximum strength Sometimes we go over maximum strength and we use partial range lifts, which I find really beneficial because Mm. this is unlocking their maximum strength capabilities Mm. without putting them at risk of driving it up uh, deadlift from the floor at really heavy weight. Mm. So it's kind of unlocking their their ability to produce maximum force because that's what we've got to try and do because boxing is very different to MMA. Boxing has a low strength training history, like we're saying, you know, the reason why we got into boxing and wanting to spread the word of boxing science, they're not seen as strength and conditioning coach until they're past their teenage years, mm. maybe like 20, 21, when they become a professional boxer. Mm. So 
So with that low strength training history, even though they might be quite strong in the ring, they don't have to express that force in a in a strength conditioning gym. Mm -hmm. So using partial range lifts can help overload and can help increase max strength, but can also try and unlock that kind of potential to lift heavier weights. And also we work down that uh, force velocity continuum, mm -hmm. working on, on strength speed, using velocity based training, giving them some feedback to lift with maximum intent and speed. Mm -hmm. And then we transition that into trap bar jumps. So if we're working strength, speed, speed, strength, we always use like some sort of jumping exercise because we want to jump higher so then we can punch harder. Yeah. So trap bar jumps is a massive uh, exercise that we use. And that's the reason why we use trap bar deadlift as one of our key exercises because mm -hmm. we can manipulate the volumes and intensities quite easily working across that continuum. Also like Olympic lifting, um, but I use variations. I don't use full uh, variations because the we're saying about the shoulders, but they're taking a lot of impact through their wrists mm -hmm. and elbows. So we don't want to increase the likelihood of injury. Also, there's high technical demand as well. So this will limit the amount of adaptation that they can make during the crucial part, uh, crucial stages of training camp. Yeah. So that's why we go for like clean pulls. Mm -hmm. And then we're saying about the, um, mm -hmm. the landmines, we do, you know, we've, this all we're talking about is rate force development mm -hmm. developing force and maximum intent through strength conditioning exercises mm -hmm. but what we want to do is be able to transfer that through the kinetic chain from lower body hips core all the way through to the fist mm -hmm. so we need to help teach that as well so we use landmine punches landmine punch throw medicine ball punch throw yeah. and a lot of your exercises that we had on the uh, on the workshop in in London, all the medicine ball throws. That's been a massive contributing factor to nice. our recent programs as well. Um, le learning how to trans, you know, you can train like a a powerlifter. You can increase that maximum force, that intent, but mm -hmm. then it's all about how to how to transfer that into punching action. Yeah, and I think that's what what we both do very well, and mm -hmm. the exercises that. I took from your workshop was definitely uh, boosting my program. Yeah, that's awesome. That was great to hear. So yeah, like, like you said, like getting a person strong and then having the ability to display that strength as fast as possible is key. Yeah. <clears throat> now I got a question here from Instagram um, from United Boxing WPG. Um, okay. it's, he says, between MMA, boxing, elite athletes, compare Junior Dos Santos with Anthony Joshua, uh, ramp ups. I don't know. And then he and he says it looks like Phil uses more heavy weights towards the peak of training, which I actually don't. I told him I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess he's trying to ask, you know, what is your peaking method for those types of boxers, whether it be you know like larger men, heavy weights, things like that. Hmm. Um, I don't train many heavyweights. Yeah. The only heavyweight that I've trained. I've, well, I trained Dave Howe, which was one of my first ever boxers that I trained, which mm -hmm. were, it's, it was six foot eight heavyweight. Damn. Um, <laughs> so learned a lot of lessons about how to train tall athletes when I was relatively inexperienced. Yeah. Uh, also trained uh, Derek Chisora, mm -hmm. who is uh, one of Britain's favorite boxers. Yeah. Um, he hasn't he fought for a world title many years ago, but he's been in some been in some wars mm -hmm. he's, he's, uh, he's a good and he's a massive character as well 
if you've got time, Phil, during lockdown, check out Dave Chisora's, uh like press conference highlights. Okay. And you see him in some uh, yeah. controversial moments. Uh, so I had him in the gym. And I don't, I think, I think like keeping some sort of like force and tension is important with, with the big guys mm-hmm. uh, throughout the program because they want to feel strong when they're dealing, dealing with uh, their heavyweight opponents. Mm-hmm. But I still like kind of focus on like kind of developing that strength speed, working down the program. Mm-hmm. But you're saying about the conjugate method and um, Duncan French used like a, a ladder mm-hmm. uh, method where basically the priorities change. Mm-hmm. And at the start, when our training is over, uh, at the start, um, max strength was key. Mm-hmm. And then it was about strength speed. Mm-hmm. But then that tension, that core tension coming through the, the posterior shoulders through core kind of change into like their core training. So mm-hmm. we're doing like a lot of stability training here, a lot of core training, uh, like plank rows, mm-hmm. uh, rotational planks, pull off press, okay. all the stability exercises, which are like body weight or low load. Mm-hmm. And then that goes into more stability, higher, higher load. So like your farmer carries, mm-hmm. your unilateral farmer walks. So they're still having that kind of the feeling of that heavy weight yeah. through, through a different kind of um, scenario. Mm-hmm. So again, that stimulus, but still working on that, being able to work on strength speed because mm-hmm. even though the heavy weights, you still want them to be tapering down effectively. You want them to be feeling fast and strong, yeah. but also you want them to be feeling that invisibility. They're able to carry a heavy weight, mm-hmm. tense up all the mm-hmm. body, be tight and then clinches as well. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, and you're scaling up the contralateral or the isometric movements, or like you would mm. say, uh, anti-rotation, anti-flexion movements. Yeah, you know, a lot of guys get stuck in just doing like the baseline of like bird dogs forever, and mm-hmm. they don't scale it up and get better, get stronger with those specific means. I love carries. I love strongman type yeah. implements. You know, we have a ton of it now here at my gym. Um, and we'll dedicate a full day to it, especially like, especially just for GPP in general and maintaining fitness. Obviously, mm-hmm. I taper off getting closer to the fight, but we want to make sure we're maintaining at least a, a solid level of general fitness throughout the entire yeah. year. Um, all right. So next question. Hope that answers your question. Um, yeah. So next question is uh, again from from Instagram. He writes, okay. Could you ask him if you ever worked, trained a boxer that was at the same time strong and punches hard, um, but often you see guys like Ward who are super strong but not necessarily uh, powerful, and then you got guys like Kovalev who hits hard but not the strongest guy in the world. Why is it so rare to find both? Wow. How long's a piece of string? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's difficult. Um, we use uh, like load velocity profiles to mm-hmm. see how an athlete performs at different loads. Whether they're mm-hmm. we we call it either tanks or Ferraris. Mm-hmm. So you've got somebody that is like a tank that is like really strong, mm-hmm. but not that explosive. It kind of like goes down like that. Then you've got somebody that is like a Ferrari. They're really, really fast. But as soon as they get to a heavy weight, mm-hmm. they kind of fall off the side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then they need to develop strength. 
the tanks maybe need to develop speed. Mm-hmm. However, you get some athletes, um, Kel Brook being one of them, mm-hmm. which is just like strong across the board. Mm-hmm. So we we have um, like different methods. We have either load velocity profile for trap bar deadlift. We do it for like a bench press or bench press throw. Mm-hmm. We also do it for the squat, but we also do it with the landmine. And this is something that uh, the UFC Performance Institute is actually utilizing with their athletes as well, mm-hmm. where we can see whether an athlete in a punch specific action, how they compare a lighter load and a heavier load. And this kind of indicates to us what uh, what kind of area of strength conditioning that they need to do mm-hmm. in terms of like punch specific work. Mm-hmm. and from a general standpoint as well mm-hmm. um with punching power i got asked the other day you know why does golovkin it so hard uh, yeah. and he looks like he doesn't particularly look as muscular as other athletes thing is with punches they come in all different shapes yep. and sizes there's no kind of one size fits all mm-hmm. you look at the heavyweight division at the moment mm-hmm. you've got tyson fury deontay wilder Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz, and Dillian White—they all look totally, <laughs> totally different. different. <laughs> all the different yeah. body composition, different reach, different height, mm-hmm. and they—they they all they all punch hard. They all got knockouts on their record. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different contributing factors to being a puncher. Yeah. Um, I think the main thing is is what what we do, Phil, is not in terms of we create punchers. We help improve unlock somebody's potential to become a puncher. Mm-hmm. We we they've got the technique, they've got the skill, they've got the timing. Yeah. We're putting the force behind that to give mm-hmm. them the potential to become a puncher in the ring. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's an important factor. So mm-hmm. when they see like Deontay Wilder not doing any strength conditioning but can hit like it can knock a, a horse out, mm-hmm. uh, then that doesn't sit well for strength conditioning, does it? Yeah. But we but with strength condition, we've got to just maintain the the message of where we're unlocking people's potential to be able to become a puncher. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people get that misconception. They're like, well, you know, punchers are born and they're not made. And, you know, a yeah. lot of guys with limb lengths and you got, you know, precision also plays a big role in that too as well. Because I know Dustin can crack and he's not the biggest guy ever and he's not really the strongest guy ever. Um, but again, he can he can put you on your, put you on your ass. <laughs> so... With that, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. From a physical preparation standpoint, we always have to understand that we're trying to give them the physical capabilities to do their sport optimally, right? To, yeah. get, to let them express their skills as adequately as possible, give them the conditioning, the power, the strength, endurance, all of that. Um, and we're not miracle workers and we're not supposed to be driving specificity all year round either, which a lot of yeah. people think that that's what you have to do. And you also have to simulate what you're doing in the ring or in the cage in the weight room and that's totally that's totally false you know so guys just word of advice on that one yeah uh, next question all right this one's kind of long i'm gonna try to speed it up a little bit but um, okay (laughs) all right so how do you periodize the snc training during the during during or during all year or during throughout the year i guess he was trying to say and then what kind of strength, speed, and endurance training you work in each macro cycle or meso cycle uh, distribution and phases? Go ahead, I'll go ahead and answer that one first because he's got like four of them. So, okay, cool. So, so yeah, so in terms of like periodization, 
I just use block periodization mm-hmm. when working uh, different physiological adaptations at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, working like maximum strength, strength speed, speed strength, and that tapers off towards a fight. Now, you're saying about how to train a, an athlete all year. Mm-hmm. This depends on what, who the athlete is. If there's an amateur boxer, they have set championships where we can help taper off for more important championships. So if we're working with England boxing or GB boxing, there'll be like for at the moment, well, we don't work with GB boxing. So let's say the GB boxing SNC coach should be looking to taper off for Olympic qualifiers, then the Olympics themselves. Whereas, uh, and there's set dates for that, obviously not at the moment, but during a four year cycle, you've got your world championships, European championships, your qualifiers and then Olympics, and you're looking to try and taper for them. And this is very set structure. So you get the dates in advance and you're able to set out a, a year program. Mm-hmm. However, with professional boxers, <laughs> all that plan goes out the window. Yeah. They might be fighting in eight weeks time. They might be fighting in 12 weeks. Sometimes they might be fighting in six weeks. Mm-hmm. You've just got to be have a plan in place, but be adaptable. And you've got to be recognizing what they did the previous camp mm-hmm. and where you want to be in the next camp. So if you've got a, a prospect that is fighting a four-rounder or a six-rounder, you can plan on what you want to work on mm-hmm. each camp. Where, so if you're working with a championship-level fighter, we've got to be focusing on the adaptations that we want for that camp. So we've talked with a boxing coach, talked with the boxer themselves, what is going to be the challenge in this camp and where do we want to be yeah. on fight night? You know, what kind of fight are we going to be fighting? Is it going mm-hmm. to be, are you going to be looking to knock this guy out in five rounds mm-hmm. or are you expecting to be going the 12 rounds? All right. Mm-hmm. If you're expecting to be going the 12 rounds, we've got to make sure that we're optimizing our fitness. If we're going to be working on the outside, we're going to be wanting to work on more central adaptations. Mm-hmm. If we're going to be working in fast bursts, and looking to really put it on this guy and put the pressure on, mm-hmm. we're going to be working more muscle buffering. Mm-hmm. So we, we look at what the end goal is and then we reverse engineer from there. Yeah. So we plan kind of each block thinking, right, what feeds into this, what feeds into this. And actually, like we did this with um, Callum Bearder. He's, uh, he's uh, a prospect boxer. He's only had two fights and he got the nod to be fighting on a big Sky Sports show in Sheffield. Mm-hmm and he had six weeks to prepare mm-hmm. so we were like right what does what exercises and what methods do we want to implement yeah. right at the uh, on fight week and, mm-hmm. and the week before and we reverse engineered everything from that i've got some great clips of that which i'm going to be posting on uh youtube and, and instagram in the next few days where we're seeing exactly what they're doing in in preparation phase mm-hmm. and then we're, what we're doing at the taper and how like kind of biomechanically similar they are and mm-hmm. showing the importance of reverse engineering okay. so hopefully i've answered uh, that question in in some sort of form i mean i think you did i, I feel yeah. like you did. i hope you, <laughs> yeah. i hope you understood that one um yeah i mean it's pretty cut and dry what about um what about your energy system training as far as in each micro cycle are you are you doing like a high low method are you just running it through like block style um, getting closer to the fight how is that being done yeah, so this really depends on what they've done in each in each block. So with a with a pro fighter, we'd be looking at what 
energy systems we developed in the last, in the last block mm. and look to try and change that the, the type of running that we're going to be doing mm. in this block and then we, we try and have a cyclic nature so mm. for example our, our 30 second uh, max out sprints mm. we don't do that every camp because if we did that every camp we'd only see minimal increases in performance we we mm. kind of like need to go and develop probably max speed max force expression to then transfer that into the 30 second mm. max sprint performance mm. if we did that every camp we'd only see one percent changes yeah. uh, that, that's not what we want to see when we use this because it takes so much out of an athlete mm -hmm. and then 30, you've, you've seen the video yourself phil and, and mm. obviously I used it with your athletes. Yep, I have. So yeah, it absolutely kills them. And you're having a massive impact on the mm. rest of their training. You want to get that maximum reward out of it. So if we use that every time, mm -hmm. then, you know, we're not maximizing that reward. Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we have three main pillars. Mm -hmm. We have central, peripheral, and we also have uh, our muscle buffering. So we mentioned muscle buffering, which sits in the middle central and peripheral mm -hmm. so talk about central which is more of our high intensity interval training mm -hmm. when we're looking to increase the volume and intensity that we can produce whilst working in the red zone so that's 90 percent mm -hmm. maximum heart rate so mm -hmm. a typical session of this would be something like four minutes on two minutes off for between four and six repetitions mm -hmm. and our athletes run anywhere between 15 to 18 kilometers uh, uh, sorry 15 to 18 kilometers an hour mm -hmm. and then at the total other end we use sprint interval training for peripheral adaptations mm -hmm. so this is 30 seconds max out efforts with three minutes total recovery and okay. this is this is basically what this is doing is increasing the amount of lactate that's in your muscles mm -hmm. and this is stimulating well it's depleting the muscle cell of all its energy Mm -hmm. And it's it's stimulating the signaling pathways to help our body, uh, our muscle, be able to extract and utilize energy, and basically uh, increase mitochondrial biogenesis. Mm -hmm. So this will help improve um, aerobic capacity. Yeah. So even though we're doing thirty seconds of running, three minutes total recovery, in total, our first session with an athlete doing this is just two minutes of running so you're saying to a boxer that's coming into your program for the first time right we're going to just do two minutes of running today they're like what scratching the head yeah. oh this is going to be easy <laughs> and then we say right you try and hit this number and then try and keep it above this number mm. and then they're like wow unbelievable and our, our boxers even though they absolutely hate the session yeah. they they love the benefits from it oh, yeah. and yeah. you're talking about we're talking about that extract and utilization of energy. We try and do this at the start of camp mm -hmm. because this is providing a strong foundation for what we call the delivery phase, which is our central adaptations. Mm -hmm. So we're then delivering oxygen to the working muscles. Mm -hmm. Our muscles have become more efficient mm -hmm. this extracting that oxygen and using it for energy. Yeah. So, so it's important that we do the 30 second maximal sprints first mm -hmm. because we're creating that adaptation to make this uh, this delivery phase more effective mm -hmm. so that's that that's probably how we'd manage it in a 10-week in camp and then we'd go on to doing a taper phase mm -hmm. but that's not the blueprint of every single 
training camp that we do, yeah. we, we, we change it to, to keep pushing our athletes on further. Now, in the tapering phase, are you doing anything alactic or are you maintaining any type of aerobic capacity work in that time frame? Or is it just basically doing their sport and sparring and getting that work in? Yeah, so it all depends on what they've done. Mm. So if they've done um, our muscle buffering phase of 12 seconds on, so on 48 seconds off, mm. we can transition them into some neuromuscular work. So we do something like 10 second max out sprints mm -hmm. with three minutes recovery. Mm -hmm. Or if they haven't been doing that and they've been doing more longer conditioning methods, so the high intensity interval training, mm -hmm. if we just suddenly go into doing them 10 second sprints, that's increasing the likelihood of overreaching mm. and possibly injury as well. If you mm. go to an athlete who's in prime condition now, mm. they go and run as fast as they can on the curve, yeah. the likelihood of them um, pulling up with a hamstring injury is high. Mm -hmm. So we're not wanting to do that. So mm. we're then going to probably some Tabata work, some very uh, low volume work, increasing that intensity. Mm. Um, and then just some active recovery work um, with, like being in that in green zone, mm -hmm. like sitting around about 60% mm -hmm. maximum heart rate and getting some, can, kind of getting some speed into the legs at, at a low intensity just for a calorie burner, just yeah. to make sure that they're losing weight. Mm -hmm. So we do that around about two weeks out from fight. Mm -hmm. So the, the week preceding uh, fight week, mm -hmm. that's when we start really tapering off the conditioning. Yeah. We've got a note, we, we've you know, you know yourself, Phil, you've got loads of different sessions that you have to battle with, especially when you're getting towards the end of camp. Yeah. And we we want our athletes to thrive in them final sessions. Yeah. So we, we, we deload them, mm -hmm. them massively. The main thing that we do uh, during them sparring, uh, them sparring phases where they're sparring eight, 10, maybe 12 rounds, mm -hmm. we put them in their altitude tent. Mm -hmm. So this is reducing their ability to run fast, uh, but still increasing that time, increasing that time in the red zone. Mm -hmm. We're still getting them cardiovascular gains, uh, but they're not being too fatigued from the, the, the running at a slower pace. Mm -hmm. So when, they, when they're in the tent, they find it really hard, but when they get out of the tent, they think, wow, actually I feel all, I feel all right. And they're not sore in their legs, they're not sore through their joints, they're not fatigued going into their sparring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously not everyone's got access to an altitude tent, but you've got to look at different ways that you can optimize performance without having too much impact on uh, on their technical training side. Yeah, that's that's usually the reasoning why we started to use breath holds in yeah. the training itself, and that was and I also seen that when we increased the ability to nasal breathe was giving the opportunity for the athlete to bring their body back down to parasympathetic faster. So they, yeah. they understood how to diaphragmatic breathe through their spine or through their lumbar spine and it helped everything kind of regulate. And it, it wasn't as, like you said, like they, they think it's, it's shit as they're doing it, yeah. but they don't get as sore the next day. They're like, oh man, I could do it again. That makes, that's awesome. All right. Yeah. So, I always ask these two questions for every guest, all right? So make it a good one, Danny. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one I always ask, and every successful person that I've come across and myself in general has a morning routine. So I always ask the guests, what is their morning routine? Go ahead, floor is yours on that one. 
just overload on coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you on no, that one. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say what my morning routine is at the moment because yeah. it's on lockdown. Um, motivation is going a little bit up and down. Um, I'm normally like in the gym quite early on. Mm-hmm. So obviously, and I, I, I also live about 45 minutes away from the gym. So no. I don't have too much time to, to get my routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main thing that I do is make sure that I'm hydrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I fill up my keg. So I've got a two litre keg here. <laughs> I fill that up and I'll try and hydrate as best as I can because if you are in the gym, so let's, you know, my, my typical morning looks like this. I get up about 5.45 a.m., get changed, get showered, Mm-hmm. get some coffee in me and then I go to the I set off around about 6.30 I'm in the gym for 7.15 mm-hmm. and then I've got back to back sessions until 12 o'clock 1 o'clock mm-hmm. so if I'm just going straight on coffee I haven't got time to drink and everything like that yeah. you know I'm going to be flagging by the end of um, uh, 12 o'clock so yeah. I just make sure that I'm prepared with my food my nutrition my mm-hmm. hydration to give me the best best possible start to the day so mm-hmm. so yeah i don't really i don't really do anything like breathing or cold showers or yeah <laughs> reflective practice or anything like that i just prepare my body physically as best as i can yeah. to make sure that um you know i'm, I'm mentally switched on uh, during the sessions yeah that's that's i mean that's all you really need as long as it works for you you know what i mean it yeah. keeps you on a steady path to success that day i feel like yeah. everybody has doesn't have to be like okay i'm doing my breath work here and i'm doing you know you need to yeah. find something that's very manageable for you and then just keep that thing going because yeah. you're creatures of habit and then you can keep that keep that positivity going throughout the day you know yeah um, absolutely when you see people like tony robbins doing a cold plunge bath <laughs> you're thinking right that's what i need to get <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. you know yeah. what one of my one of my partners actually sent me <laughs> sent me a, a link to that video uh, last night about yeah. about about his cold plunges and 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 his ten minute breathing, mm. um, I'm not opposed to that. I, I do breath work too as well. I do like cold tubs, um, not every morning. Uh, one thing I will say that I do is I get my conditioning or my cardio in uh, yeah. very early in the morning because let's face it, I got too much going on throughout the day for me to stop and do that. So yeah. yeah. All right, so this... think, oh sorry, I was just going to add on the way to work. I make sure that I put on some sort of podcast, yeah, to get me to to get me firing to to get my mind engaged as yeah. well. Because if you just listen to the radio or listen to some music, oh, you sure. can just drift off and daydream on your way to work. Whereas like you you feed in your brain to, to, as soon as you can in the morning to get yourself switched on. Yeah, we both have pretty long drives to our gym, yeah. so that that. I do that all the time. I feel like that's one of the things, it's one of the advantages I have right there over everybody else is that I have a yeah. nine, like a 90 minute drive to. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm getting that in as much as I can. I probably finish like, I probably finish an audio book a week, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. Because of the fact that I'm driving so much, but yeah, we use the time wisely. All right. So the second question is going to be the last one. And because the podcast is called Daru Strong, and strong, in my opinion, means many things. So for you, I want to give you the opportunity to tell us what does a strong person mean to you? That's a tough one, that. 
That's still fun. Everybody says that. (laughs) Yeah. I think, like, during this lockdown, I've kind of been reflecting on quite a few different things. And, you know, I've, I've been quite happy with how I've, like, kind of managed that. And I think, like, um, in terms of strength, obviously, you want to be a role model and role model to others. But you've got to kind of be be open as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, with this lockdown, it's been, like, a lot of negativity. It's, you know, I'm out of the gym. And if I didn't have my online business, I wouldn't be able to earn anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could be looking at it a really negative way. But I think that a strong person has something negative but mm-hmm. doesn't but bury the head in the sand mm-hmm. they they kind of look at what what are the positives out of that negative and try and change that negative into a positive situation mm-hmm. and in your career you're going to have haters you're going to have people that disagree with you and you're going to have a lot of setbacks as well mm-hmm. you've got to try you've got to trust in your own process you've got to take on some critiques on board sometimes your critiques aren't going to be as um as useful or Mm -hmm. you know you can ignore but some are going to be useful for you to move forward Mm -hmm. and always be like kind of focus on on what your goals are um when i first started out doing this i said earlier um i started doing a blog in 2012 i weren't ready for that Mm -hmm. so what that brought was a lot of people taking the mick that means like making make a joke out of you i don't know whether you use that term in america but Definitely. uh no sorry t- t- taking the mick that's a that's a polite way way of saying it but uh the naysayers basically and that could have crushed me at that time that was a very very sensitive period also had like a, my set on like few jobs i got loads of setbacks there didn't didn't make the grade you're going to have these setbacks throughout your career. Mm-hmm. And I think your ability to learn and reflect and move forward and keep working towards your goal, mm-hmm. I think that is def- a definition of a strong person because when you see somebody as strong, you see them as like kind of invincible mm-hmm. with no weaknesses. Mm-hmm. But I see a strong person of having weaknesses, having setbacks, but having the ability to overcome it. I don't know about you, Phil, but you're you're fantastic on uh, on video and everything. Where where was you five years ago, six years ago? Were were you as developed as you are now? No, not at all. No. Not at all. I would say I look back at some videos that I that I've done in five years ago, and I and I can't even really watch it. Like I just like, Ugh, you know, yeah, but yeah. So it does take persistent practice and and making sure that you always are progressing and. And for me, like, I've had a huge amount of setbacks throughout my life, you know, and for that and where I came from humbled me and got me to the understanding of it's never really over until you win, pretty much, right? Yeah. So I'm going to take that from uh, from my man. What was the, what was the, the motivational speaker? What was his name? Thomas? No, no. Les Brown. Les Brown. I'm going to take oh, it from right. Les Brown. It's not over until you win, baby. It's not over yeah. until you win. Honestly, that's, that's how I live my life. But that was very, that was something that I always like to ask. And mm. I, always get, I always get a pause, right? But then everybody yeah. comes out with like 
the greatest explanation of what they feel yeah. is so important. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I felt like I rambled on and went through. Uh, my life was flashing before my eyes whilst I was <laughs> going through all the setbacks and surprised I didn't start crying. <laughs> I mean, you but, get, if you get to really feel like, okay, yeah, I know this person now. You know what I mean? That's why yeah. I like to ask that question for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, like you're saying, like, what is the definition of strong? People see it as this big positive character, but, uh, you know, invincible. Mm. But a lot of strong people have been through a hell of a load of setbacks. It's all about how they come back from that. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. That's well, before we go, I want you to shout out social media. Make sure you follow this man. Follow Boxing Science. Go ahead. The floor is yours. Name them all out. Well, well, I've got three Instagram pages at the moment. So I've got my main page, which is Wilson underscore Boxing Science. We've also got Boxing Science. And we've also got Red Zone Running, which is basically a page dedicated to high-intensity interval training. Mm. A load of different free runs for you. So if you want to challenge yourself during lockdown, go ahead to Red Zone Running. We've also mm. got a YouTube channel, Boxing Science. We also just started the Boxing Science podcast. Mm. And... We've got our um, online memberships, boxingscience.co.uk. Like I said earlier, it's a seven-day free trial. Mm -hmm. So try it out if you like it. Stay with us. We've got a load of different content, video workshops, exercise library, weekly workouts. If you don't like it, you can cancel it and just have a look at our, our free content. We've got a range of different articles on there, strength conditioning, nutrition, psychology, mm -hmm. specific to boxing performance. We also do like analysis of Canelo's training and Anthony Joshua's training as well. We've got everything under one roof, really. So, yeah. Cover, covering all aspects. I highly recommend this guy's programs. Make sure you check him out. Make sure you go follow him. Thanks again, Danny, for coming on. I hope I didn't take too much of your time, bro. And uh, my name is Phil DeRue. That's Danny Wilson, Boxing Science, and we're out. <laughs>